Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Hey, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I'm glad to be back at it here after a short break while my wife and I stumbled through the first month of parenthood. I've got some good interviews coming up, though, and I hope you find them as interesting as I do. This week, my guest is Nelson Matthews, Vice President of Western Rivers Conservancy, a group whose slogan is, Sometimes, in order to save a river, you have to buy it. WRC acquires strategic properties that allow for the greatest conservation impact along the finest rivers and streams to conserve habitat, protect key sources of cold water, and provide public access. They partner with long-term stewards like the Forest Service, the BLM, state parks, tribal nations, and universities to ensure their conservation efforts are permanent. As for Nelson, he developed a passion for all things rivers when he took a summer job in the 80s as a whitewater rafting guide in the Sierra foothills. After a short stint practicing law in California, Nelson followed his passion and went to work managing the Trust for Public Lands river conservation efforts in the West. During his 27-year tenure with the organization, he worked to conserve more than 100,000 acres of land with recreational, historic, and environmental significance. Nelson grew up in the foothill town of Placerville, California, and now resides with his family in Bend, Oregon. He continues to lead trips as a whitewater rafting guide and serves as the chairman of the board of directors for the American River Touring Association. Thanks to Nelson for the conversation. Thank you, Western River Conservancy, for your important work, and thank you for listening. Here's episode 32. All right, I'm sitting with Nelson Matthews of Western River Conservancy. Nelson, what's going on, man? Hi, Dylan. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You're uh, one of several people right now that I am uh, interested in talking to, one of many people, but really thinking about, about water in the West. And um, I'm wanting to sort of educate myself on all the issues that we're facing and I figure the best way to do that is talk to people who have spent a lot of time on the water. And uh, you you sure have. Yes, I've, I've uh, well, I, I shouldn't betray such an embarrassing family secret, but um, I do have two webbed toes on each foot, <laughs> which, uh, which I inherited from my Italian grandmother and passed on to my daughter. So I think that's given me some inclination for me. I'm Italian. I don't have any webbed feet. I, I don't know where, <laughs> I don't know what, what line of uh, what line in Italy brought this about? But um, yes, I've uh, I've always been very interested in water and, uh, and both playing it as a as a child and and working on it. And when I was in just out of high school, so I grew up in uh, Placerville, California, yeah, which is uh, in the foothills of the Sierra, and um, I was just your typical high school kid um, played football was on student council parent my parents were bankers and developers and 
my mother went to a, uh, a meeting about, about growth in the foothills there, which there's a lo- quite a bit of gr- growth, Bossville's just uh, east of Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of growth going on and there was issues with water. And she met a guy named Bill Center who ran a uh, campground there in the foothills on the American River, the South Fork of the American River. And he was looking for local high school kids to work as whitewater guides. And she said, I know one. And I was just about <laughs> ready to graduate from high school. And, and uh, I, they hired me to work for Art of River Trips. Uh, Bill ran the, the local um, franchise of Arda there on the South Fork. And I went out and trained as a guide. And it, it really set me up for the rest of my life working out on the on the on the South Fork of America, and, and I, I went from being sort of vaguely aware of, of uh, conservation issues to being pretty steeped and baked in them. Yeah. Working there because there was some ongoing battles regarding damming up the South Fork at the time, and we were we would do our river trips and take folks down, and we'd also do a talk about the importance of rivers and what the threats were to that specific river. Um, a number of dams that would have turned it into a series of lakes that were proposed that they were the rafting community was fighting against. So anyway, that that was how I got started doing it, and I ended up doing it being a guide on the the American and the and the Tuolumne Rivers in California for about six years. I was able to spread it out through college and my first year of law school. So what a great job! I it spoiled me. And in fact, my daughter is a guide on the on the Rogue River. She just started. You know, she's been working there a couple of years, but she just started back to work here yesterday. Did she get the webbed feet? She does. <laughs> she's she has, but she only goes up to one knuckle. I go up to two. So. Oh man. Anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been thinking about this in the last couple of days. The rafting. I live on the Roaring Fork River here in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, uh, and I see people raft by every day. And I've been thinking like, man, that's, it's a really low impact recreation. I mean, aside from a few boat ramps, what is the impact? There's no motor. You're not killing fish. You're not displacing anything. You're just kind of floating along. It's uh, what a great, you know, sustainable way to, to enjoy the river. Well, we really emphasize that Art of River trips, which I was, I've been on the board of actually after working as a guide and then graduated from law school and practicing law. They asked me to come back and be on their board of directors and i've been on their board for over 30 years and they were created actually in the 60s to get people out on the rivers to educate them about the importance of protecting them and they they um arda is actually a nonprofit entity and um the real emphasis was you you figure out quickly you get people out there and they fall in love with the place and people when they fall in love with the place they want to protect it and that's what that's been a theme throughout yeah. and they still do that the organization still does that and tries to get folks from all walks of life out on the river it's a commercial company but it, it does that and um and also my i don't want to jump too far ahead here but my my uh jobs since then working with both the trust for public land and with uh with western rivers conservancy that's also part of our emphasis too, is getting people out to enjoy the resource 
and and rafting is one of the best ways to do it for fairly low impact and and you you know build it build a connection with people and a sense of a sense of their place and they they will actually fight to protect it so that's 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 the hope and the goal there so. I I believe that strongly I also think it's one of the things that makes it really difficult to protect remote places um, I've talked to people in you know. Alaska and it's like out of sight out of mind there's not a lot of people that get to enjoy that landscape and fall in love with it and fight for it um, but places like Placerville great you got a bunch of uh, a bunch of friends there of the river I was looking into the town it's got a pretty interesting history there of like the gold rush and um, all the development there I, one of the things that stuck out to me when I first googled the name of the town I saw a picture of, a, of the river one of the forks of the American River and a bridge that was like a hundred feet spanning a hundred feet above the river. And I was like, Oh, this thing floods, huh? Like uh, why are those bridges actually, so high? <laughs> that's an interesting thing. I think you saw the Forest Hill Bridge, which is on the north fork of the American River. And the reason it's so high is they proposed the thing called the Auburn Dam, which was supposed to be built there, and they're gonna flood the entire canyon. And they discovered that their uh, where they're building the dam had uh, fault lines running underneath it, and that it wasn't safe, and that if, oh. it, if there was an earthquake, it would flood. So you have this amazing, I get, I think this amazing high bridge going up this canyon, which just is sort of out of context. But yeah, we did have flooding too, but it wasn't that high. But it's okay. also that's a place where people like to base jump now. I think. <laughs> there you go. But it all ties back into the threats to the California rivers and all the rivers was uh, you know, during that time of it's less so now, but damming was a big, big, big deal. And, you know, I recall, you know, I worked on the Tuolumne as well and seeing helicopters flying in doing doing seismic testing for proposed dams on that, which was, wow. yeah, was eventually defeated as well. But, um, you know, these places are are amazing, special. We've, we've re-engineered our water. Uh, throughout the West, and it's had a huge impact up here in the Northwest salmon and steelhead fisheries are in decline. In fact, this la this this year, you know, we I, I'm also a steelhead fisherman, and and this year the the runs are so low that we can't go fish on the river oh. on the shoots, even the ones that are coming back from hatcheries. So anyway, that impact is pretty well pretty prevalent. And that's part of what we do is trying to trying to mitigate for that, trying to try and do some rescue store. But back to Placerville, Placerville was a great place to grow up. It was a, it's a foothill town uh, founded during the gold rush. The American River actually runs right through Coloma, which is where the original discovery of gold occurred in 1848. I think it was the sort of the gold rush of 49. So it's sort of steeped in that gold rush history. And, uh, Placerville's nickname was Hangtown because they had that sort of rough frontier justice there. Mm. Oh, that guy. Kind of, okay. That, yeah, that guy. So, but it's but they changed it to Placerville to get a more uh, uh, respectful name. <laughs> I was reading about uh, where I live. Glenwood Springs was originally called Independence. I think I was like, damn, that's way cooler. <laughs> yeah, I wish they would have left it. Well. But uh, you know, with Placerville, it looks like a place where, like you were saying, it's really been re-engineered, really been affected by all of this commerce over the last 250 years, 150 yeah. years. Um, how is that kind of, I mean, as a kid, 
did it all seem normal and then you kind of slowly realized how this river system has been modified or is it evident yes. is it channelized like what's going on there yeah i mean it's you as a kid you just think of it as cool stuff that you know there's mines and there were old plaster mines there were actually mines near my house but the river with the lakes and the you know the dams on them that didn't really seem like anything to me other than a source of water and electricity and then working as a guide you realize the impacts and how the fisheries have changed how the you know the river when i worked as a guide on the american you know you'd wait for the water to come up in the morning based upon the electrical needs of sacramento mm. start the releases and start out of, at a low fish flow and then it'd come up to a level you could actually go on but you know these have all been re-engineered re by humans to benefit humans and, and it, it's had a huge impact on the fisheries and, and what was what was native there um i mean i just anywhere you go like I, we've i was this past weekend fishing on the mcleod river which is a beautiful river a great fishery on it but historically before shasta dam went in there they had salmon and steelhead coming up up into up to the base of mount shasta and and now the salmon bump up against shasta dam down in red in redding and don't get past it so they it's just really significant impacts to the ecosystems and the huge runs of salmon that are historical historic to the, all these rivers are now just mere vestiges of themselves and and uh doing we're doing what whatever we can right now to try and protect and preserve what's left this is basically where, where we are yeah i lived out in uh, knoxville tennessee for a while in the, the tennessee river i remember someone saying this is no longer a river system ecologically this is a series of reservoirs wow. like it's really not functioning uh and that kind of stuck with me i was like oh yeah it looks like a river it's flowing like a river uh, but it's not allowing for upstream movement of fish right. um it's not swelling and and um it's not doing all the things that that it used to w with specifically with um the american river system does the spawn still occur like partly upstream? Do they, can they get up to the first dam and spawn or? No, they, um, I think there's a fish hatchery in Natomas, which is in Sacramento, which the, the, the American river flows into Sacramento, um, North, South and, and middle fork meet in what's known as Folsom dam. And that dam right there just stopped all fish from going up above there there are salmon and steelhead that come up the american steelhead in particular as i recall but they only make it up to the the base of uh, a dam in sacramento and that's as far down in the valley so it's all and that with those changes were i don't remember when those dams were built but probably in the 40s if not maybe later it's just everywhere we work you know it's there's very few um undammed rivers in in the world in in the united states um and even the ones like i'm going to go raft next week the john day river which is one of the longest undammed rivers mm. in oregon but in order for the fish to get there they have to go through the the fish ladders on the uh columbia to get up there so that's it's unique that that one it doesn't have dams on it but it's it's rare it's pretty rare What's the, are those fish ladders like pretty uh, effective at allowing them to move or 
does it really reduce? Well, it's not that the fish ladders are fine. It's I think the bigger impacts the long swimming through the long warm lakes that are behind them. Oh, long, and they're doing a lot of work to try and fix that and mitigate that over the time. There's a battle. Uh, there's there's efforts um, farther upstream to try and remove the dams on the Snake River, which has become yep. quite a topic. Um, and that will help. You know, if that occurs, it'll help allow fish passage up into Idaho. And the, into the snake and salmon systems, um, the Deschutes and the and the and the uh, and the well, all of them are affected by the dams that are down lower on the on the uh, Columbia. But they they do have fish ladders and ways of moving people, moving not people, fish. Up <laughs> yeah, I support um, uh, Trout Unlimited, and that's one of their big battles right now. They've been yeah. doing great work. Yeah. So you yeah. went from uh, you you got this sort of education through your your summer job, your teenage job, and then how did that lead to what you're doing now in conservation? Well, it's, it's funny. I, I always joke rafting ruined me for, ruined my future career. That I went to, uh, I went on to school at Davis and got a degree in economics. And then I went to law school at UCLA and got a degree, got a law degree and passed the bar. And, and my family background is my father's a developer and, and real estate. My mother is was involved in real estate too. Um, I had, uh, I was very fortunate. I was very interested in uh, conservation and environmental work when I was in law school, but I focused on, I, when I came out, I was practicing real estate law. Uh, uh-huh. But my joke was that, that working as a rack guy ruined me because I just, the idea of wearing a suit going into the office every day was, was a little bit tough. I didn't really, I wasn't enjoying being a real estate litigation associate and i lucked out i found this i saw this job online um not online excuse me in the paper this is way back in the, this is in the 80s early actually nine early 90s and uh applied for a job at the trust for public land as a as an attorney and um i was uh i applied and i didn't get it and i was super disappointed because they I, I applied for this this attorney job, but I had been doing real estate litigation as opposed to transactional litigation, uh, transactional real estate, which is, that distinction is probably lost on anybody, but meaning that I was suing people rather than writing contracts. And they said, well, that's, we're looking for someone to write contracts. And then they had a job open up for a project manager. And I called them back and I said, what's, I looked, what's the project manager do? And they, they're the folks that go out and negotiate the re- actual purchase agreements and work with the communities and put together the whole conservation effort. And I said, well, that sounds a lot more fun. <laughs> so <laughs> I applied and luckily I got that job pretty shortly after I didn't get the other one. And that launched my 31 year career in doing conservation real estate and, and acquisition. It was, it was a uh, great, I mean, I went from, filing lawsuits to suddenly being going out and meeting with ranchers and farmers and people out in the, and putting together these deals to buy and protect rivers. Worked for Trust for Public Land for, for uh, 27 years and then started 2018 as vice president here at Western Rivers Conservancy. Is the model pretty similar between the two, like uh, in terms of acquisition of, of private lands that you see as having you know, a, an extreme conservation benefit or 
How did it work at the Trust for Public Land versus what you're doing now? It's basically the same type of organization, different focus areas. The Trust for Public Land works and they still do work on uh, conservation uh, um, along rivers or uh, creating open space, but they also focus on urban work, creating parks and uh, natural natural areas close to home. Um, but the model is basically the same and I can describe it in a fairly succinctly is that, you know, that with it's working within the market for a conservation result. The, the real, real estate goes on the market. I mean, a piece of property, an important piece of property, an important piece of land, a private party will suddenly decide to put it on the market. And, and uh, the partners that we work with, the Forest Service or BLM or National Parks or city, city parks, um, they'll be really interested in trying to acquire and preserve it, but they don't have the funding in place and the timing working with various agencies and entities, including tribes, it takes a long time for them mm. to pull the funding together. And what we would do is, or what we still do is we go and secure the property, either buy it outright or buy an option, but secure it. And then we'd work with the entity to pull together the funding, both through private philanthropy and foundation and public grants to pull the money together to eventually buy it from us, essentially. So we would secure it, buy it, and then work with the community to pull the funding together to eventually buy it from us. And then they would be the long-term stewards, the entity we're working with. Yeah. In 30 years of doing this, I've got to imagine that the acquisition process has gotten a lot more difficult lately. Well, it's always been challenging, all of them. It's like we, we joke, you know, every project dies three times or sometimes you say, you know, if something, if everything's going easy, I get really nervous because <laughs> yeah. something's going to go wrong. Yeah. But the biggest challenge that I've seen is the funding used to be able to go to Congress and get a line item and get a piece of property funded through the Land and Water Conservation Fund or, or various other sources. Uh, it became more complicated over time. We were we would pull in multiple sources of funding to try and fund the acquisition of these things. And what both the Trust for Public Land and Western Rivers Conservancy have is we have a pool of capital that we are constantly investing in conservation and then pulling back out and when we convey it and then reinvesting it. So it's it's a it's a very market approach. But the, the mechanics of it are, 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 I think they're incredibly effective, but the real impact is to the species that we're working to protect and the, or the people we're trying to protect, provide access to or the places, the amazing places we get to protect using them. So um, how do you, it was more, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just wondering on that, on that note, how do you go about analyzing like do you have areas around the country where you go as soon as a piece of property opens up along this stretch of the river we're ready to go or is it kind of um more piecemeal how do you target these properties well there's um as i say there's opportunities that arise and opportunities you create is the way i would describe it because we're always working with willing sellers we're usually mostly working with private parties so it's really Number one, we do identify areas that we think are priorities. Western Rivers Conservancy came up with 
a publication and a series on online called Great Rivers of the West, which identified mm. rivers that we thought were pretty important. So there is some research and effort that's put in put in by the, the, the nonprofit conservation organizations. But then a lot of it is also agencies reaching out to us, like BLM calls and say, hey, this property's on the market. We really want it. Can you guys help us? That happens. Uh, and a lot of, and sometimes communities will call us um, and you know, citizens group fighting to save something and we'll get involved that way. So, I mean, our, our core expertise is in finance and real estate and politics too, because it's, these are all political to some degree, but um, it's bringing those tools to it. And then, then working with the long-term, we call them long-term stewards of the property that, that they can manage them on on out after they've been protected. So let's say like the the BLM or whomever approaches you and says, "We've got this piece of property. We'd love to have it. You know, we need we'd love to get your help in the short term." How long in that case would you hold on to that property? Is it a are you holding these things for a long time and then ensuring that they go into the right hands, or is it a pretty quick transaction? Yeah. No, it's long. It's it can be very long. So with, uh, I, and just I'll use an example of a federal transaction working with the Forest Service, the BLM. Most of their funding comes through what's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund, mm -hmm. which was just recently, uh, it's probably been two years now, uh, there was a uh, the Great Out... Great American uh, Outdoors. American Outdoors Act, yeah. yes. Great American Outdoors Act passed which fully funded the land and water conservation fund. And that was funding the, that was created. I can't remember now it's been over 50 years uh, with money that was coming off offshore oil leases. So it was a way of, in, in essence, mitigating energy extraction. Mm. The money was said to the, was, could be used in the, in the fund, but they weren't actually appropriating the full amount, which was I think about close to $900 million. And then with the Great American Outdoors Act, they created this, they permanently funded it. So every year that money will flow into that and the, it's appropriated and then competitively granted out to the federal agencies and, and federal grants programs. Um, but anyway, long-winded way of saying, if I get a call from the Forest Service right now and they want me to try and protect a piece of property and we go buy it, um, the you're looking at least two or three years before the funding is in place and they're ready to take it from you. Okay. That's not too it's bad. It's not too bad. Nope. We've, we've had other ones that have lasted longer, believe me, that they, you know, we've had ones that occasionally there's a one that happens fairly quickly, but um, it usually is at least a couple of years that we're looking at. Do you ever, do you ever do a, a deal where let's say you purchase a property go through the easement process, put a conservation easement on it, and then sell it back to a private buyer? Yeah, we have done that, yes. That would, so that's that sounds... Another, that's another mechanism, yeah. That sounds more enjoyable than getting involved with the feds, but I don't know. <laughs> well, they're all complicated. Yeah. I can't... They, they all have their own... Every deal has its own hair on it, but the... the um, we have... I've been involved in the purchase of conservation easements from private private landowners. And that's a that model is actually works well in some places. But in a lot of the rural West, 
they have a lot of public land already and they don't and they uh, the counties are not thrilled with adding more public taking more land off the tax rolls and and adding more public land and in those instances conservation easements work great because it stays in private ownership but you're achieving the conservation result yeah. with the easement um the you have to have an entity that can enforce them and that's the the other thing is that you can have these things that people can ignore them and if someone's not there to the land trust doesn't sue them or or tell them to stop you know then there's a problem but but it, it is an effective uh, mechanism out there okay um, the other thing I was thinking when you were saying, you know, about how how long you've been doing this, aside from just the um, the growing cost of real estate out here, it's also the the drought, the long term drought that's been taking place. What has what have you experienced in your career doing this, in terms of um, the status, I guess, of these rivers that you're working on? Well, I I, I mean, the prices have gone up significantly and i i mean and the market has changed too and so i was i look at all these ranches that I'm, I'm constantly getting ads for properties that are for sale in the west and looking to see if there's good water river frontage or important and the prices have just gone up they're not for ranchers anymore i mean right. you can't raise cattle and live on the property and make ends meet for the prices it's for people that have a lot more means coming out and I guess uh, buying them and leasing it out to ranchers or something. So that it's an increase in costs that that's significant. Um, the water is, is always important. And, and uh, we try and acquire, you know, we've been, I've done a lot of transactions and we're involved in transactions where we acquire land with significant water rights because of that. And then working to see the water protected in stream in some some instances moving it from agricultural use to an in-stream use to protect the fishery the prices of water have also gone up significantly so the demand for water in the west and the and the politics around it are, have, are all have always been fractious so you know anytime we um, it's not so much an economic thing but it's it, anytime you're dealing with buying water rights and trying to make a change you're going to have probably going to have some headwind from, from folks and and also communities don't want to see agricultural land go out of production yeah. that's another issue that you have to deal with and, and understand too so um i've always i'm working on a property right now where we're we're buying it and the water is very important to endangered threatened species but we also want to make sure that the agriculture continues out there because of the community so and you're just playing with kind of higher stakes these days i guess yeah. And in terms of the drought, I mean, it's just, I, I grew up in the, I, I was a, a teenager in the seventies and went through a, what I thought was a bad drought in California there because I couldn't ski <laughs> in the late seventies. And this is just, this is just exponentially worse. I mean, what I considered a forest fire back then, I remember there was a 9,000 acre fire near my, where I grew up. We thought it was huge. Mm. And a 9,000 acre fire is like nothing these days. Gosh. So it's just it's the impact, the environmental impacts are just tragic. Um, and the, and the impact of the fisheries and the, and the rivers themselves is, is, is really incredibly concerning. And I don't know when that will change. I don't think anybody does, but yeah, no, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it, 
thank goodness that property rights, private property rights, even exist in this country and in this place and time to allow you to do this kind of work. You know, that's historically not not uh, not a given. No, I mean, I mean, if you look at the West, a lot of the West is is was transformed by the Homestead Act and other, where the federal government owned everything, and then you had go. I mean, my great grandfather had a, a, a homestead at a farm in in South Dakota. Meaning, you could go stake a claim, and as long as you made improvements and built a shelter or whatever was in the act, that property became yours, right? Correct. And the and the um, and that's what the West is. And if you look at the ownership patterns, it's all along the rivers. Yeah. It's along the really cool things that you want to see protected. So if you look at now, I mean, the, the, you've got big national forests where the land is protected or at least is being managed for conservation. Um, and and sure that people will have issues with with how it's being managed. But the the, the but if you look at the ownership patterns of, uh, throughout the West most of the land, a lot of the land, I should say, along rivers and streams and water resources are privately owned. So having an organization like Western Rivers Conservancy, they can go in and acquire that and put it into conservation ownership and, and work with a, a long-term steward to protect it is, I think, pretty important these days. So. I dig it. Tell me about some of the places that, uh, that you all focus. I mean, on your website, People should click through and see you've got it broken up by state. But um, if you had to summarize it, what are your main areas of focus geographically or, or main um, sort of things that you look for? Well, um, in the Northwest, I mean, a lot of our work is around salmon and anadromous fisheries, salmon and steelhead, and, and buying, working on uh, uh, key uh, properties for for restoring the, that fishery because it's I think the I forgot was the off the top of my head and I may be wrong but you know the historics the historic run up the Columbia was 16 million fish and now it's about a million wow so I mean and that's before the before these rough few years so um that's one driver recreation is another one we we provide access I mean I went rafting on the lower salmon here a while back and took out a Heller Bar and Western Rivers Conservancy um, bought Heller Bar, you know, 15 years ago or 16 years ago, I can't remember how long it was, but to provide access for people to go out and enjoy. Um, focus areas, I mean, we are, we're working right now primarily, and this is it, it, in, in terms of states, is California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Colorado. And then we occasionally work in, in Utah and um and nevada i've got a brand transaction in nevada right now um in terms of the and, and new mexico um and arizona i didn't say that already um in terms of uh folk river systems themselves um we can't i mean we do we've done a lot of work on the salmon system salmon river system mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of work on the in, in washington oregon on the columbia basin watershed um and, and it, it is where we've done a example of a focused, sustained effort on a specific river. We did quite a bit of work on the Ho River, which is up on the Olympic Peninsula. Okay. And did, I can't remember how many miles of 
sequential acquisitions over time to protect the whole whole system there. So occasionally we do focus on one river and try and try and do an assemblage of acquisitions. We've done that on the John Day River. So we will, we will focus on it on a river. We we focused on the John Day in Oregon to try and put together an assemblage of protection. Do you ever get opposition when you're when you're going through this? I, I spoke to the folks at a uh, American Prairie Reserve and they're buying up similarly. They work with willing sellers, as they put it, and they, they buy up private lands um, that are butted up against public lands, and they're trying to form this massive reserve, wildlife reserve, essentially. But a lot of people aren't thrilled with their efforts because they're, they're cattle ranchers, and these folks are reintroducing bison. The cattle ranchers have concerns about disease transmission, etc., do you have any sort of opposition to what you guys do when you're trying to buy up property? Uh, yes, we do get opposition to acquisitions. We try and work with the local communities um, and build local support for um, our efforts. In rural areas with, that have a lot of public ownership already, um, there there's frustration with more government ownership. Okay. And, and yeah, it does occur. I mean, I've, I've had a, a more than a few where fractious community meetings that I've been the focus of, but we've been able to work through those in, in most cases, you know, the people, you know, people genuinely, I've worked with a lot of ranchers and farmers and folks that are in more rural environments and they, they're genuinely conservationists themselves. Yeah. They just don't want to be told what to do by the government. And uh, that's, it's pretty simple. And then and most folks are very concerned about what you know what what's happening on that and where they live and want to see it protected. So I can understand that. Yeah. 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 You want local land to stay in local hands, and you don't want um, more more government and from uh, big government intervention. I I totally understand that, but yeah. I think the long term vision of what y'all are doing. Um, I don't know. It seems to have great benefit to these places. Like you're saying, opening up access or whether it's just keeping, keeping a stretch of river from being developed or, or dammed or, or what have you. I mean, it's, um, it's awesome work you guys are doing. What, what are some of the, your most proud accomplishments or projects with, uh, Western rivers conservancy? I've only been here three years, but I've had, I've been fortunate to be involved in uh, quite a few. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's two. I've already mentioned the Ho, which I know is the Ho, protecting the Ho River was early on in the organization's history and was quite an accomplishment of creating an assemblage there, protecting one of the most diverse uh, river ecosystems in the, in the Northwest. Um, the other one that we are continuing to involve with or involved with is a large one, which is the uh, purchase of Blue Creek on the Klamath River. Oh, okay. And uh, working with the Yurok tribe, and uh, well over forty thousand acres of land, where Western Rivers was able to acquire the property and create a salmon sanctuary on Blue Creek, um, which is an important, actually very important, freshwater tributary into the Klamath, cold water tributary where the salmon are coming up from the coast. They pull into Blue, Blue Creek and refresh themselves before they keep going up from Klamath. Oh, cool. Checking it out. Yeah, and, and working with the, the Yurok tribe to to, uh, 
to convey the lands to them. So it was also had a big social justice element to it. Um, and we continue to this day, um, gradually conveying the property to them and, and, uh, and it's quite an accomplishment. So, and very important to the, the Klamath River itself. So, that is awesome. Yeah, and I um, working with working with tribes. I'll just say personally, is it was extremely rewarding because there's, like I said, there's a combination of both. There's a big con conservation element and there's a social justice element, which is, which is, um, very rewarding for me personally. Plus, I like working with the tribes. I've had very good experiences working with them. My personal project that I'm involved with right now within Western Rivers Conservancy, the, the um, I'm working with the Colville tribes up in Washington. Uh, we bought a ranch that folks have been trying to convey for, it's, I, I took a shot at when I was with Trust for Public Land, it's been over 10 years, um, called the Antoine Valley Ranch. And um, Antoine Creek is a, is a Ha spawning habitat for for summer steelhead coming up that are threatened um and by buying that ranch we bought with it a, a dam the second largest earthen dam in washington state oh. and allows it enables the colville tribes to uh, control the water releases they're not trying to remove the dam because it's not really a fish passage barrier it's high enough where historic one used to be but they can let cold water out when the salmon when the steelhead are up spawning or coming into the system and they can and they're working right now to regulate that we're in the middle of that we sold half the property to them we're waiting to hear for about another grant to convey the remainder to them but that's pretty that was a pretty rewarding one um still working on it though i should jinx it um <laughs> there's another fascinating property that we're working on um in uh South uh, Eastern Oregon called Disaster Peak Ranch. Um, we we are it. We purchased this property because it's one of the last strongholds for a genetically pure Lahontan cutthroat trout, where which are also listed as threatened. Wow. Um, the ranch itself controls the what's called McDermott Creek. Controls a big chunk of McDermott Creek, and has pastures and, and meadows around it and uh we're working right now to secure the funding for that it's become a little bit more challenging because they've also discovered one of the largest deposits of lithium in the united states near it that could get tricky <laughs> yeah we're we're trying to navigate those waters that happened after we bought it and uh we're trying to navigate the that that those politics right now and understand more but we're basically protecting um our acquisition will protect the the, the fishery there and also we want to continue grazing on it because it's been managed for years the reason they're still there is because of the way the property has been managed and we're keeping the multi-generational ranch family that leases it from us out there working and Good. raising cattle and but the big new shift is just this discovery of lithium and what yeah. does that mean to everything we're trying to get done there? And it's certainly heightened the politics of it. I bet whoever sold that ranch was pretty pissed when they found out about the uh, the lithium later. Yeah. <laughs> I, we, we didn't discover it until last year, so it's been a couple of years. And then I'm not sure what 
what the actual value is under the ranch itself, but the, the surrounding lands are there's intense. It's subject to a lot of scrutiny right now. Wow. So. Well, that's cool, man. I, I'm, I'm really excited about this kind of work. You know, it is like, it's real estate, it's transactional. Um, and it may not be the same as on the ground conservation work. It, it, you know, in terms of like, I'm sure a lot of your work is analyzing deals and, and working at a computer just like me, but the impact that you guys are having is pretty spectacular. And, um, just the fact that, that you can operate within the free market and get these kind of things done and you figured out a way to do it in, you know, a way that's, that's legal and fair. And, um, it's just, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to see. Thanks. No, it's been, it's been pretty rewarding. Um, it's, it's, uh, I mean, at Western rivers, I, I, I came to this organization because of their impact and also they're really fun people to work with. <laughs> um, but the, um, they really, we jokingly say we punch above our weight. We're only a small 20 plus person organization, but they have a pretty huge impact. And, uh, you know, land, land conservation, I, I, Think that there's all kinds of different ways of doing conservation. There's um, advocacy organizations who go out there and fight. You know, Friends of the River. When I was in my youth fighting dams, that was very important. And there's all kinds of different niches to make an impact, and this is just one of them. But I've I've, I've really enjoyed it. I I felt uh, my my wife Joanne said when I got it, she goes, "You felt found the perfect self-actualizing job." And I was, and that was at the ripe old age of 29 and I just turned 60. So um, I'm very fortunate to be able to continue to be self-actualized. So. I'm 29. So there's hope for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Nelson. I appreciate learning about this stuff. If, uh, if people want to learn more or get involved, where would you like them to go? Well, they can go to our website, westernrivers.org. That's an easy one. Um, and I'm always happy to tell, talk to someone who's interested in, in, in learning more about uh, land conservation, the kind that we practice. Well, um, yeah, folks, go to the website. It's, uh, it's a well-done well website. They've got a lot of beautiful images and descriptions of these projects, so you can kind of um, visually see some of the stuff that we've been talking about today and some of the gorgeous places that these folks have been able to protect. Um, but yeah, thank you, Nelson. I look forward to, to seeing your continued success with, with Western Rivers Conservancy. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for doing this. This is really great. I it's fun. The, the land ethic idea. So Yeah, it's cool. I'm learning a lot. Yeah. Thanks, All right. Dylan. Thank you. Bye.